In this series, we are going north to the land of ice and snow and the midnight sun, to a place that was called the first line of defense and a cordon against aggression, to a place called Greenland. This is the story of how one of the most remote and inaccessible places in the Northern Hemisphere, the Greenland ice cap, with one of the most inhospitable environments, became a central theater in the Cold War. Greenland wasn't just a forward line of defense against the Soviet Union. It was also a battleground in a decade-long feud between the United States' own military branches. It was a stage, sometimes literally, for the United States Army to prove its continued value to the American people and to Congress in an age dominated by intercontinental missiles and overwhelming air power, nuclear submarines, and manned spaceflight. Greenland was the setting for the Army's most audacious appeals to the American people, to America's allies, and to the world. Greenland was a place to make a case for relevance, to prove Arctic aptitude, and to stake a claim to a share of that ballooning Cold War crock of gold, the U.S. defense budget. Over the next few episodes, we will look at Greenland and its role in the Cold War and some of the more extraordinary feats undertaken by the U.S. on and around the ice cap and the way that those endeavors figured into the wider 20th century world. So, on to the Arctic. Cold War on Ice, Part 1. Coming to you like a winter wind, straight out of the Cold War vault. The cover of Life magazine on September 22, 1952, was a haunting black and gray image set behind the magazine's trademark vibrant red banners. A man's silhouette against a freezing sea. He is signaling with semaphore flags to a hulking dark ship. The caption reads, an LST is waved into new polar base. In the corner of the cover, it says, the biggest operation since D-Day. This was the week that the Pentagon had made public its colossal effort to construct an Air Force bomber base above the Arctic Circle in Greenland. It had been a secret project dubbed Operation Blue Jay, and it would become, and remains today, Thule Air Base. A quick note, I'm often surprised by how many people have trouble with this place name. It's pronounced Thule 
in all of the military media will be referencing, and it's pronounced Thule by people who live and work there. If you really want to be authentic, you can say Thule, because the pronunciation of the place and the base was borrowed from the Scandinavian language pronunciation. Greenland was part of Denmark until self-rule in 2009. It comes from Greek, Thule, and it's a faraway northern place. In the Middle Ages, it was used to refer to Iceland, and Greenland was called Ultima Thule. End note. The Life article was titled The Birth of a Base, and it describes the secret construction of the airbase in detail. The article's subtitle says, Now U.S. can be told of the huge effort to build Blue Jay in northern Greenland. This was the first public unveiling of the Thule base, and it was a massive publicity coup for the military both the Air Force and the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. It wasn't just meant to impress the broader public as a show of American military might and as a jewel in the crown of Arctic defense, but it was also meant to send a very clear message to the Soviet Union that the United States would bring the defensive frontier to their doorstep or offensive capability, as the Soviets surely saw it. Life magazine described the base as a, quote, strategically priceless arm in the U.S. panoply of defense, a guardian that looks steadily over the top of the world down into Russia. Inspiring and sinister at the same time, I think. When Germany occupied Denmark on the 9th of April 1940, a relatively hasty agreement was made with the United States, authorizing U.S. forces to defend the Danish colonies on Greenland, which was itself a territory of Denmark, as I said. The wording of that agreement, which was called the Agreement Relating to the Defense of Greenland, allowed the United States to maintain a military presence there for the sake of its defense and in support of operations in the Atlantic. Though the Danes made some effort to eject the Americans after the war, they eventually joined NATO in 1949 and apparently saw some benefit in letting the U.S. stay. The opportunity was hardly lost on the Air Force. That branch had been aggressively expanding its global reach through a base-building campaign, and the recommendation was made to develop Thule. It's important to remember that this predates the B-52 Stratofortress, and so the Strategic Air Command wanted to get as close to the Soviet Union as possible to limit refueling and extend the range of the B-36 Peacemakers and the B-47 Stratojets that were in service at the time for SAC. With a base at 
Thule, the B-36s could reach 85% of the Soviet targets, and the B-47s could make it to 50% with just one in-flight refueling. The best account of the construction of the base, as it was secret, and film and photography were strictly controlled, comes from the work of a single man, Master Sergeant Lester Marks of the Army Signal Corps, who was tasked with documenting the construction. Through this film, what had been a highly secretive undertaking the previous year became very public knowledge. An interesting side note, the finished film was nominated for an Academy Award in 1954 for Best Short Subject Documentary, but it lost to Walt Disney's The Alaskan Eskimo. The images from the film were edited and repurposed to create a few different versions that float around on the internet. I'll do my best to find the most authentic and put it in the show notes for you. The Army Corps of Engineers was responsible for construction of the base, but civilian contractors were essential to meeting the deadline, which had not been imposed by the Air Force, but by the fact that Thule was to be built 750 miles north of the Arctic Circle. At those latitudes, the summer construction season would only be three months from the time the sea ice on Baffin Bay broke to the 1st of November, when the sea lanes were expected to close again. The Army Corps of Engineers picked the engineering firm Metcalf and Eddy of Boston to create an overall construction plan. The construction companies Condon Cunningham of Ohio S. Groves and Sons and Al Johnson Construction, both from Minneapolis, got the building contract. One of the most daunting parts of the plan went to Peter Kewitt Sons Incorporated of Omaha, which would be tasked with hiring and managing the thousands of civilian workers required to finish the job before the ice came. These firms came together under the name North Atlantic Construction, and the pieces were in place for one of the more difficult construction projects ever undertaken by the Army Corps of Engineers. In February 1951, the key players drew up a list of what would be needed for the project. It wasn't really a wish list, so much as a set of must-haves if there would be any chance of building a nuclear bomber base 900 miles from the North Pole in three months. The list included 100 ocean-going vessels from the U.S. Naval and Merchant Marine fleets. These ships would carry between 200,000 and 300,000 tons of cargo. Sources differ on how much it ended up being. 4,000 army technicians and 6,000 civilian construction workers would build the base. The report on the project's completion 
published in 1956, reflected that the 6,000 civilian contractors would have to be, quote, willing to work at a remote job site under severe weather conditions and be physically, psychologically, and emotionally fit. The whole hiring project would be, as the report put it, a recruiting and training program unique in the annals of the construction industry. So, where to find all of these psychologically level-headed, emotionally stoic, and physically fit men, and all 6,000 would-be men, who were also adapted to working in freezing environments? Well, Minnesota, obviously. The Army Corps of Engineers and the U.S. Employment Service figured out that the Midwest had an abundance of construction workers, and Minnesota, in particular, was an obvious place to look for workers with cold weather experience. North Atlantic Construction set up a base of operations near Minneapolis in the small town of Rosemont on the site of the Army's decommissioned Gopher Ordnance Works, which had been an ammunition production facility that had been closed after World War II. The consortium took out an ad in the Minneapolis Tribune. It said, quote, construction engineers, construction superintendents, for work outside the continental United States in a very cold climate. Top salaries. Responses were sent through the newspaper office to keep the sponsoring agency anonymous and keep the project under wraps. When the next ad appeared two weeks later, the responses were to be directed to the innocuous-sounding North Atlantic Constructors. That ad asked applicants, Can you take cold weather? Ready for a long trip? Do you want quick or big money? Applicants were filtered through the Minnesota State Employment Service's 33 statewide offices. Their preliminary screening included proof of citizenship, proof of a minimum five years of experience, physical fitness tests, and emotional stability tests. The process also added an IQ test and a written test specific to each job. I wonder what the applicants must have been thinking as they went through this ordeal, which was definitely different from any construction job they'd ever applied to before. Maybe they were just thinking about quick or big money. Whatever it was, it didn't deter applicants. In the end, Minnesota State Employment Service interviewed 25,000 men, and they hired 5,000. Those lucky enough to land the job, which was referred to only as Blue Jay, 
were notified with a postcard, and they were assembled at the Rosemont facility to start a two-week orientation that included cold-weather survival training. The final location of the job was still a secret, but the cold-weather survival training must have been an unnerving clue. Even if it was, the pay was too good to worry about it for long. Though salaries varied from position to position, later interviews with Blue Jay workers put many salaries at between $1,500 and $2,000 a month. In current dollars, that's roughly $15,000 to $20,000 a month. The work schedule was a 12-hour shift, seven days a week for the duration of the project, 40 regular hours and 44 overtime hours. It isn't particularly surprising that no one asked questions about their final destination. I think it's important to note again that this is 1951, just six years out of World War II and already deeply involved in the Korean War. One of the requirements for employment that I neglected to mention was the age requirement. It was between 27 and 50 years old. The minimum age of 27 meant that all of the applicants would have been at least 21 at the end of World War II, and so all of the applicants would have been eligible for military service. Well, I can't find evidence that prior military service factored into the hiring process, it's very likely. I mention this as a way of explaining two things. First, why no questions were asked when no answers about the final destination were forthcoming. They were simply following orders. And second, how five to 6,000 contractors kept a fairly tight lid on the size and scope of the project that each of them had been briefed on. There was a certain patriotic feeling about the endeavor, with the Korean War underway and the Cold War with the Soviet Union obviously on. The project had the feeling of a very American enterprise. So, with this army of civilian construction contractors in hand, we move on to Greenland. Or at least we'll try to get there, wherever there may be. The final destination for the thousands of workers stayed a closely kept secret as they boarded trains and buses for the Norfolk shipyard. The first men to arrive were put on ships of the northbound fleet. 2,000 of them were loaded onto the troop transport, General Stuart Heinzelman. Even the officers aboard that ship had only been told that the mission was classified. Given that fact, the ship's medical officer, Warren Brown, was surprised to see a photographer from Life magazine giving them a send-off from shore as they sailed from Norfolk 
Brown said, We spotted a life photographer on the nearby shore taking pictures of us. He had a large truck with Life magazine emblazoned on it. We were supposed to be on a secret mission. Nevertheless, secret it was. When the ship was 20 miles from shore, the ship's commander called the officers to his quarters to open the set of secret orders. Those orders were still less than forthcoming about the eventual destination for the men, the construction materials, and the ships of the Armada. The orders instructed the Stuart Heinzelman to proceed to the southern tip of Greenland and wait. And so north they sailed. The ship's departure from Norfolk had been scheduled precisely, and with the Arctic summer already underway, there was no time for a delay. And so when a few hundred more men bound for Thule arrived late at the staging area, the ships had already left. After two weeks of waiting for transport, 500 workers had gathered at the shipyard. This time, the Air Force stepped in to share in the logistical challenge. The 500 men were flown to Westover Air Force Base in Massachusetts, then to Goose Bay, Labrador, then onto Sandrastrom Air Base in Greenland, at the time known as Bluey West 8, codenamed Bodkin. From there, still unclear about a final destination, Air Force planes began to ferry men farther north. In an interview with one man from the first wave of Blue Jay construction workers, he recalled the moment he finally learned the name of their destination. He asked a crew chief on the transport plane, where are we going? And the crew chief answered, I don't know where you guys are going, but this plane is going to Thule. When the first Army survey team had arrived at Thule four months earlier in February 1951, they were met with total darkness and weather the U.S. Air Force Colonel Burnt Balkan described this way, quote, The survey party arrived at Thule and fortunately experienced possibly the worst weather to be expected in this region. Temperatures were down to 30 or 40 degrees below zero. Winds reached velocities of 95 to 100 knots for several days. End quote. Fortunate, the colonel said, because it gave the team real experience with what could be expected from the Greenland weather. But the first wave of workers to Thule were much luckier. The days were 24 hours and temperatures had climbed to a balmy 50 degrees. Having taken the Air Force's transportation, the 500 men had beaten the naval fleet which included the ships that were to be used as housing. Tents were also in short supply because most of them were aboard the ships, and so in the lull between the long trip north and the massive job to come, 
Many of the 500 new residents of Thule enjoyed the summer and slept on the beach. On the 9th of July, the fleet arrived at Thule after a month at sea. The passage had been delayed by two weeks because of unexpected ice in Baffin Bay, and the convoy had to wait for icebreakers to lead them north. In total, 110 ships made the passage, bringing men and cargo. All told, 148,919 tons of cargo was offloaded over the course of 44 days. That's 3,386 tons a day on average, with the daily record set at 7,218 tons. The loading docks had been constructed of seven decapitated LSTs, amphibious ships cut at deck level with all of their superstructures removed. They had been towed into place by a seagoing tug traveling with the convoy. To offload the ships, landing craft mechanized, or LCMs, and duck boats had been brought out of mothballs from World War II and put into service for Blue Jay. They set up a loop, taking on cargo from the ships in the deep water of the harbor, coming into the piers, offloading, then rejoining the queue. Occasionally, they diverted to push drifting icebergs out of the way. Each of the crews worked 12 hours on and 12 hours off, seven days a week. One LCM pilot, Frank Robb, made hundreds of supply loops, but told a reporter years later that during his time at Thule, he never actually set foot on Greenland. Construction moved on through the summer and continued into the second week of October, when the creeping permanent night and sub-zero daily high temperatures meant the end of the effort, at least for the season. The construction operation had met its goal and an airbase stood where a gravel airstrip had been just a few months before. Hangars, barracks, shops, power plants, roads, warehouses, technical facilities, and state-of-the-art airfield facilities had all been completed, with expansions planned for the next building season when the ice would break again. Eventually, Thule's 339,000 acres would support 10 aircraft hangars, 7 miles of taxiways, a main runway nearly 2 miles long, and 17 miles of fuel pipeline. There were 90 miles of roads, 122 barracks, fuel tanks that could hold 100 million gallons, a bakery, 63 warehouses, six mess halls, a gymnasium, a hobby shop, a laundry, two primary power plants, a post office, a theater, a chapel, a 50-bed 
hospital, a library, and more. It would become home to 12,000 people. The Air Force began to ferry that first wave of workers back home on the 22nd of October, 30 people per plane, eight planes at a time. Eventually, of the thousands who had occupied Thule during the construction season, a skeleton crew of 500 was left behind to continue interior construction projects and carry out maintenance through the winter. Life at the base that first winter settled into a rhythm, if a slightly lonely and perpetually dark one. The chaplain at Thule, Knut Lee, wrote a weekly article about life at the base, published in his local newspaper back in Winona, Minnesota. In the column, he described Christmas as a lonely and depressing scene, where special holiday meals were minor compensation, and that the men, quote, employ artificial means to pick themselves up if they're feeling too low, desecrating the holy days of Christmas by drinking themselves into chemical jubilation, end quote. In later years, the base would sell only one beer at a time and no hard liquor. When the beer was handed over, the man was sent to the back of the perpetually long line. The workers were supplied with news through an Air Force radio station with the call sign KOLD, cold, as if they needed to be reminded. But life at the base, especially among the workers in those early days, was particularly isolated. A Kewitt employed chemist named Frank Watt, who worked on the project a few seasons later, remembered in an interview that some men had worked at Thule for 100 months through most of the first decade of its construction. And the time away from home and lack of communication had taken a huge toll on their personal lives. Almost every married man on the job had been divorced at least once, and one manager had been married five times, twice to the same woman. In mid-1954, the Thule Air Base was declared fully operational. The base unit was upgraded to an Air Force wing. Thule's main mission, in the eyes of Strategic Air Command, had been to support a wing of 21 B-36s in the employment of the SAC war plan, meaning it would be a staging area for nuclear attacks on the Soviet Union. Thule gradually gained status in the ranks of the Air Force, Originally, the idea of such a remote base had been met with some suspicion, but as the polar concept gained traction, Thule gained importance. The polar concept was a strategy that exploited the far north 
as the quickest route to attack the Soviet Union. As part of Thule's increased importance, it acquired a 10,000 foot by 200 foot runway, 29 hard stands for heavy bombers, and six hangars capable of housing all of those bombers. A special program called Seaweed, pre-positioned wartime supplies, and planned for deployment of B-36s against the Soviet Union. Thule also got a special storage area, which was an innocuous name for the storage facilities used for the nuclear munitions that would call Thule home from 1958. Thule's Cold War importance went beyond its nuclear war-fighting capabilities. Spying would become the base's specialty. The airborne reconnaissance missions from Thule served three main functions. There was photo reconnaissance for detecting and pinpointing ground targets for the bomber fleet, electronic reconnaissance, known as ELINT, for identifying enemy radar and communication systems, and weather reconnaissance, which was essential for ensuring the reliability of the bomber fleet and its ability to bomb the Soviet Union. In the 1950s in particular, the secrecy in the Soviet Union was a big problem for SAC. There was little reliable intelligence on target locations, and so while some information could be obtained by electronic eavesdropping from land and sea-based listening posts on the edge of the Soviet Union, nothing could compare to visual spy flights. In the spring of 1952, there was speculation about construction of a Soviet airbase in the Franz Josef Land archipelago as a parallel and a counter to Thule. The archipelago sits north of Novia Zemlya, the already far northerly nuclear testing range. Overflights of that Soviet territory began later in 1952 and originated from Thule. Flights penetrating the Soviet airspace would continue through the late 1950s. In an ironic twist, the whole polar strategy, as it was called, the idea that the most essential front of the Cold War was the far north, finally had its breakthrough with the B-52. That beast could fly intercontinental missions across the Arctic without staging or refueling from Thule. So just as the Arctic became essential to nuclear war planning, the Boeing B-52 Stratofortress made Thule Air Base unnecessary. Thule was many things to many people. In the beginning, it stood as a symbol, perhaps more than any other U.S. military installation. As the narrator of the film Operation Blue Jay says, quote, 
We cannot read the minds of those dark and shadowy figures who brood on war and conquest. But perhaps the thought of this colossal airbase has caused them to falter in their plans for aggression. Perhaps they have read a different kind of warning in the miracle of Blue Jay. The warning that there is nothing impossible to American resourcefulness, hard work, and plain guts. That there is no problem or enemy, nature or man-made, that this country cannot defeat in its stern resolve to protect its freedom." End quote. But there were more practical purposes, too. In the 1950s, Thule allowed the United States Air Force to gain familiarity with Arctic aviation, and the U.S. Army to have a staging area to gain familiarity with extreme cold weather operations. The recon flights out of Thule were essential for nuclear war planning before the ICBM force was fully deployed. And by 1960, Thule's role had completely shifted to strategic defense with its radar installations and defense radar support roles. Today, Thule is a home to the Air Force Space Command, a Space Force, if you will, as it has been since 1982. The base houses the 12th Space Warning Squadron, a ballistic missile early warning site, BMUs, which is used for detecting and tracking inbound missiles, and Detachment 1 of the 23rd Space Operations Squadron of the 50th Space Wing's Global Satellite Control Network. So, as it has always been, Thule is on watch, standing sentinel, listening quietly in the cold. Epilogue Maybe most importantly, in its early days, Thule was a foothold in the Arctic. It was able to be resupplied relatively easily by air and sometimes by sea. And so, during the 1950s and early 1960s, the base served as a staging area for scientific ventures and military endeavors that would not have been possible without the rugged infrastructure first laid down during that brief but frantic building season in the Arctic summer of 1951. What were those scientific ventures and military endeavors that set out from Thule? We shall see next time on the Cold War Vault. This episode was written and produced by DJ Kinney. That's me. If you're interested in any of the music you heard on the show, or would like to see some of the historical images and films used in the research, have a look at the show notes at coldwarvault.com. Find The Vault on Facebook and Twitter.
Twitter to see images and items that don't make it into shows. You can listen wherever you find your favorite podcasts, so be sure to like and subscribe, especially on iTunes. Don't get too cold on your next trip to Greenland. I know I'll be warm down here in the vault. Until next time.